Hello, and welcome to our podcast, The Midnight Ramblings. I'm Carrie Ofstein-Rosenthal, and I'm with my dear friend from Ledoux Junior High, Jenny Silverstein. If you are joining us for the first time and you're wondering what this is all about, Jenny and I are two menopausal friends who can no longer sleep at night. So we decided that the best thing to do would be to create a podcast about what we and others think about when we can't sleep. So as we like to say... Let's get ready to ramble. So today I have the pleasure of introducing a good friend of mine who I've known for, dare I say it, over 20 years. I met Dr. Lance Fogan in a one-of-a-kind writing seminar many years ago, and since our first meeting, he's made quite the lasting impression. Retired from his clinical neurology practice at Kaiser Permanente Medical Center, since 1997, he teaches neurology at UCLA. Dr. Fogan is the author of Dings, an intriguing medical mystery novel. He's now editing Deborah of the Butterfly, the 50-year story of his marriage and of his wife's courage living with breast cancer for 31 years. And Lance, uh, with all of that, I just am so happy you're on and want to ask you lately what you've been thinking about. Well, it's a nightly uh, ritual in that I am now alone in my queen-size bed, and uh, I still sleep on the same side. But I look over, and that's where my wife uh, was. She uh, died uh, after 31 years of breast cancer Mm. in uh, October of 2015. And um, I'm keeping her spirit alive. And I look over, and uh, there's everything pretty much like she left it. The blouse that she wore uh, two days before she died, and she was quite ill when she died, um, is still on the bedside chair. Her perfume toothbrushes are still in her cup on, on her side. So I had uh, a niece, uh, an adult uh, woman. She came to visit uh, a few years ago, and she saw my everything I had. And she said, what? Are you nuts? Get rid of all that stuff. But in talking with uh, another friend, um, he uh, hit the nail on the head. He said, no, Lance, I, I can see it's you're keeping her spirit alive. And that's all it is. And we were married 50 years. Oh, my gosh. And uh, in, in 1984, is when uh, she felt a lump Mm. and that was uh, and we were married in 65 she asked the uh, radiation oncologist the physician what are are the chances of this coming back after radiation he said 100% (laughs) she hated him Meanwhile, uh, we lived a pretty good life traveling the world and, uh, and with our grandkids uh, appearing in 99 and then in 03. But she bore all this. She made all the decisions of treatment with her doctor. She uh, knew things weren't going to last forever. Without telling me, she and our older daughter at that time, who was like 45, went to our local cemetery and purchased six plots, one for her, one for me, one for Sarah. So Sarah and I, the daughter that went with her on either side of her, 
And in front of her is the younger daughter, who is the mother of Perry and Emmett. But Perry and Emmett, she purchased plots for them. Uh, some months after, uh, after yeah, we, we celebrated her 70th birthday. And we got a bottle of a good white wine and my two daughters and uh, Deborah and me. And we finished off a bottle of white wine, which is unusual. And Deborah was so happy. Got great pictures of that. And uh, meanwhile, all these years, we went all over the world on uh, cruises, uh, the Canard, uh, the Queen uh, Elizabeth and Queen Mary, et cetera, 18 times. And wow. She wow. was able to enjoy all this. And then uh, I had uh, three three-month uh, sabbatical study leaves in London. So we enjoyed England for three months each. Uh, and Deborah would uh, be talking to her friends and sending letters. And she told me, you know, they're so jealous of me that we're doing all these things. And we were. And I just see her face in the back of an open-topped uh, Range Rover uh, Jeep in Kruger uh, Wild Animal Park in South Africa. Oh, I know it. So um, Deborah uh, then was getting worse again. And uh, she decided rather than palliative care, now it's time for hospice. And hospice is supportive care, but no treatments to cure. Just support, pain control, et cetera, et cetera, and a lot of counseling. So the Kaiser Permanente, I cannot stop praising Kaiser Permanente's hospice teams. Each of the hospitals, we have about 11 hospitals in Southern California. So they said, well, you're gonna have a, uh, a nurse who you're gonna see mostly. Then you will, we'll have a doctor and you won't see a doctor very much, but unless the nurse uh, will consult on the phone, unless the doctor has to come out but it'll be the nurse and a social worker and a spiritual advisor. Now me, we're not religious. We didn't belong to a synagogue. We're both Jewish, but uh, we don't want a spiritual advisor. Oh, Deborah, put a quick stop to that. I want a spiritual advisor. And they said it was a Protestant uh, minister who had his own congregation, but uh, worked with their hospice team a few times a week. Okay. So the hospice uh, spiritual advisor came, uh, Pastor Joe, and he was magnificent. That first time he comes in and uh, he asked Deborah, and it was the three of us, I'm taking notes because I wanted to write about, keep track of everything. And it was the three of us, and he's sitting across from her, and she says, uh, Pastor Joe, I, I know I'm dying, and I'm thinking, what do you say to that? He was wonderful. He said, Deborah, I hear you saying that. That's not what I see. Yeah. I see you're vital. You're full of life. You're interested in your home and your family. <laughs> and after that session, and he's ready to leave, do you want me to come back? And Deborah said, said you were the frosting on the cake. Weeks later, because we started the hospice in May, Deborah told the hospice team, 
you must, whatever you do, because she knew hospice does not treat or cure, you must keep me alive until 11 a.m. on June 13th. And they look confused. And she said, well, we were married Eastern time in Buffalo, our hometown, at 2 p.m. And that would be 11 a.m. in Pacific time on June 13th. Oh, God. And I'd always thought, I'd always dreamed, even when we were under the chuppah, being married under a little tent in the synagogue, I want to be married 50 years. So we made it. Wow. He died like four months later. But I asked Sarah, uh, our older daughter who uh, lives with us and who has a, is a certified hypnotherapist and has a practice. Sarah, what do I get mommy on our 50th anniversary? And she said, why don't you name a star after her? So she oh knew of this company in Switzerland that certifies, however they do that, registers some star way out there in the galaxy. For $250, we got a map of the galaxies with a circle around uh, some dot out there, all framed. And I decided to call it Deborah of the Butterfly, because butterflies were her thing. So I gave it to her that day, and I got a picture of her. You know, she's looking thin and wan, and uh, uh, she was really sick. So she was beaming, holding this this framed uh, map, and it's on our wall now. And she said, see, I'll always be up there. A couple days before she died, and uh, the nurse, who uh, was so... Sometimes she would spend three hours with us. Two days before she died, she came and I said, so we'll get a hospital bed for, for you, for her. Deborah told me, I told the nurse, she never wanted to be in a hospital bed. And the nurse said, you mean it's all right if she dies in your bed next to you? I said, of course. Okay, so... Um, the last, uh, the day before she died, she was looking pretty bad. I called Pastor Joe, Chaplain Joe. Uh, yeah, she was amazing. Because um, a month, uh, six weeks before this, Chaplain Joe said he's going on a vacation. He comes back afterwards. And uh, I called him and he, he said, Let, let's just be quiet for a few minutes, Deborah. And he said, in the, on the chair and held her hand. And she said, how was your trip? She remembered that. And so he said, uh, I'd like to uh, recite a, a, a psalm, uh, the 139th Psalm. So that, um, Pastor Joe, Chaplain Joe is holding her hand after she asked how was the trip, etc. And I, I'd like to recite the 139th Psalm. So I looked it up and he said, we thank thee, Lord, for knowing where we are. We thank thee, Lord, for knowing what we're doing. And then he ad-libbed. And we thank thee, Lord, for Deborah's cooking. So Deborah and I both uh, consider ourselves gourmet chefs and all. And, and she smiled with her eyes closed. 
and mouth, she didn't vocalize, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, she died the next day. At, and um, I called our daughter, uh, Jordana, and uh, Sarah, who lives with us. And they were there. And it was the end. I knew that. And uh, both of the girls held her hand as she's taking her last breath. And the girls start screaming. So I took her wedding ring off and, uh, and um, they took her uh, down the stairs. And then I wait outside the front door and there she's on a gurney under a white sheet. And they put her in the back of their black... Uh, um, vehicle and I watch it go down the street and that's the last I would really be close to her so the next day uh, according to Jewish um, tradition she was, she was buried but such high regard for my sister and brother-in-law they were in my house the very next morning at 11 ready for this the cemetery and uh, we all went there and Deborah was very very private and Sarah was really protecting uh, the older daughter uh, who's who then was uh, probably about 40 uh, 47 and my sister Rolene and Louie get up and sitting in the mortuary to go in to uh, say our last thing and open up the casket and Sarah told my sister, no, 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 uh, Aunt Rolene, uh, mommy told us, uh, just the three of us, the two daughters and, and daddy will go in. So I could see Rolene was very disappointed, but <laughs> Sarah had a little box that um, Deborah had prepared for her burial. So we opened up the casket, her hair was wet from, moist, still from, uh, the mortuary shampooing her and giving her a bath. And she's in that dress that she picked out 14 months before. So I put her wedding ring back on and I put a necklace around uh, her neck with the uh, two girls' pictures in them. I opened the box and in the box that she wanted to be buried with were my two daughters' baby teeth. It fell out when they were growing up, you know, at five to eight or whatever. So there were the baby teeth, and Deborah had decided she wanted to be buried with those teeth and with the ashes of her favorite cat <laughs> <laughs> and with her father's uh, uh, special ring. So uh, then we sealed the casket. And it, and it was, uh, we, then we um, went to the, uh, to the burial part of the cemetery. And my daughter was with me, uh, Sarah, the older daughter, and the others were in other vehicles, driving just uh, hundreds of yards to the burial site. And Sarah says, look at that, at the clouds. And I took a picture of it. The clouds had formed and separated like a broken heart. Yes, it really looks like that. And uh, um, so 
So we drove to the site, and there are not many Jews in this uh, cemetery. It's here in our local town, Newhall, Santa Clara, Clarita. And I had never, I passed that cemetery, you know, for, we were in the same house uh, now for um, 49 years. So uh, Deborah decided this is the cemetery she's going to be buried in. Okay. I didn't appreciate it, but my brother-in-law from Buffalo looks at the distant mountains and he said, what a beautiful sight. So I look, yes, <laughs> the mountains were green and it was beautiful. I never thought of it that way. So, um, uh, and uh, Pastor Joe, Chaplain Joe had told, uh, <clears throat> told her weeks before she died <clears throat> that um, uh, they talked about, Deborah and he had talked about officiating at her, at her burial. <laughs> She's talking about all this. So uh, he, he officiated. Now, this was the other thing. Amazing. A few, uh, a few weeks before she died, I'm lying in bed with her. And she said, would you go get Brent's um, catering menu? Brent's was a, 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 a wonderful uh, delicatessen. So we're in bed. Would you get that? I said, well, you want me to order something? Just go get the menu, Dodo. So I went down and I brought it up and she's looking through it. I said, what are you doing? You could probably guess. Well, she said, I'm picking out what you're going to order for that reception the night that I'm buried. And that's what we did. All right. <laughs> I ordered. And that night, uh, yeah, about 40 uh, people were there in our living room and the nurse had come. So uh, Deborah of the Butterfly and D-E-B-R-A. Oh, and she was very certain about that. And she was never a Debbie. And I knew that from our first date. Uh, and our first date in 1964 was um, just a block away from the insane asylum. Huge, old, uh, block-walled uh, building uh, in Buffalo where I took psychiatry classes, etc. And uh, our first date was there and a collegiate uh, uh, bar, very popular with young people, the Harvard and Yale, Pennets all hanging all over, wood paneled, was a block away from the mental hospital. Deborah's story was that when she was five years old, her biological mother was stripped away from her because she was locking her, she, Deborah, and her younger brother who was like two or three, and Deborah was five, in closets, leaving the house, attacking her husband, my oh. father-in-law, with knives and broken glass. And she was institutionalized in 1950. Oh, my God. Deborah was five. And then over the years, Deborah knew she was still alive, but didn't know where she was. No. And she would ask her father, Dad, um, please tell me about my mother. And he said, I will write you a letter sometime. That, was, that happened multiple times over our, our married life. So uh, where did that come from? 
1950, we finally got to see the records at the hospital. He was told by the doctors in 1950, protect the children from this paranoid schizophrenic mother. He was doing that until Deborah was in her 50s. Oh my God. When she would ask, tell me about my mother. And she was there in Buffalo, you know, right there. And I was in that hospital with a future mother-in-law. So this wonderful man who I loved, who was so gentle. And he, as my brother-in-law said, as I complained about that, he, he didn't know. He was ignorant. He was just trying to do the best he could. 1950 through 1996, he finally sent us, Deborah, a packet with all the letters that the mother had written to Deborah, which he had intercepted, and the social workers, uh, doctor's notes from, from uh, the mental hospital. From 1950 to 1996, <gasps> tell Deborah where he was, where she was. So finally, he uh, sent her this packet. Do what you want with it. I mean, she's in her 50s by that time or so. Uh, uh, so that was, he was doing the best he could. I loved him. And he remarried when, uh, when uh, Deborah was 11. And they were married all those years. And uh, I loved those, both those people. Did she ever see her mother? Okay. In 1996, Deborah died in 2015. We, we took him up on that. We went back. We made an, she made an appointment with the social workers at the mental hospital. And we went to the, we had an appointment to see her mother. So, so we're walking down the corridor in the mental hospital. And there's an old lady who seemed like she was dressed neatly in a wheelchair. Nobody else around. So I thought, ah, this must be she because uh, we expected this visit. And... Uh, we walked to the nurse's station further down, and Deborah says, I have an appointment. Uh, I'm here to see my mother, Alice Stern. So the nurse looks down at the log and says, hmm, <laughs> it's been almost, it's been like 47 years. Uh, she's been institutionalized there. Hmm, Alice doesn't get very many visitors. So Deborah uh well, uh, and then the nurse said, you're her daughter, you say? And this is your first visit? And Deborah says, well, yes. And I, I lean in and I say, well, her father was told by the doctors in 1950 when she was institutionalized here to protect the children. So that's what he was doing all these years. He never would tell her where her mother was. But he just sent us everything. So she then pointed to that old lady in the wheelchair. Well, that's your mother there. So we approach and Deborah looks down at the ladies in the wheelchair and she expected us and mentally she was clear. Uh, and uh, Deborah looks at her nails, well painted. Oh, mom, this must be where I get it from. Cause I take care of my nails like this too. Who does your nail? So they moved us into a private little room and I set up my camcorder and I recorded the whole meeting. And then there was another one a few days later. Deborah had arranged with her brother uh, a burial for the mother who was still in the institution. But, and after they had done that in Buffalo, it, uh, 
she died. And the, and the cemetery, the mortuary people were shocked that after no plan, you know, she was still doing well and all, but then a few weeks later she died. And they decided on the mother's stone, uh, may, may she be for a blessing. And that's what Deborah has in, uh, on her stone too. So when I think of all these things, and I see Deborah's uh, property in our in our our bedroom, and that blouse, and her perfume, and, and other things. Um, I smile, so I'm not sad at all. What do we even say, Carrie? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I have to say. I have to say that one, you have inspired me. You know, we talk about death and how it's so nice to hear you talk about death in the way that you have. And it's probably, you know, I remember when my grandmother died, I had about a year when she had cancer and, and she and I were very, very, very close. And I remember being so sad, but also I was at peace much like you. And the reason I was at peace is because our relationship was so solid and I felt so much love and such gratitude for that love. And I, I feel like that's what you express when you talk about her. And I feel like, I mean, the whole time you were telling the story, our listeners don't know this, but you know, you had a smile on your face, you know, you were just really at peace with it, which is how I hope I can experience every death in my life because, and it made me think to myself, like, if you had to articulate one aspect of her personality, which you most admired, what would you say it is? Very capable, very intelligent, very capable of anything. Well, so. let me ask you this. If you had to give your daughters, uh, uh, Jenny and I, your grandchildren advice on how, what, what was the key to your good marriage? What would you say? Oh, it's who you are. Um, your, I guess, soul. Do the right thing. So it's all your spirit and your personality. Do the right thing. You're called at 3 a.m. Oh, no, no. Do the right thing. You know what Bashert means? Sure do. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was Bashert. Yeah. yeah well, it just seems like Deborah was your touchstone. You always did the right thing. And I love that as a mantra or just ad advice of, of, you know, what makes a good marriage or what makes you return to somebody who has breast cancer for 31 years over and over, having the medical knowledge that you did and knowing exactly what was happening to her and having this emotional connection as your touchstone. What makes someone do the right thing and be so faithful, you know, while the love of your life has basically, like that doctor said, 100% chance of returning, you know, death sentence. You know, and you did the right thing and you're still doing the right thing by keeping her spirit alive. And she is such a butterfly. I mean, and just going back to what Carrie said about her, her relationship with her grandmother and the peace that you had and that certainty. I know that feeling too, both with my mom who I and my dad, who I'm so connected to, they're still alive, as well as my grandmother, um, both my grandmothers, who you feel a soul connection to. You feel that even though you're far away from that person, like you can always return to that connection and you can return to that cocoon. And I really believe it's no different when you pass away. 
you can smile and feel you, your home, your home in that connection. And you've done the right thing. And her, and her, there's a testament to her right next to you. She died in, in the bed. She's still, her spirit is still in the bed and she is a butterfly and the star is there. And I feel that's just such a beautiful metaphor for all of us and all our listeners that there is a star always looking down on us that lives in this invisible connection between, you know, someone that you have loved and that you still love. And I'm so grateful that you came on, Lance. You have so much to say and you're just a wellspring of knowledge and wisdom, not only medically as a doctor, but just as a person who has been so loyal to this beautiful butterfly of a woman who was determined and joyful and, and even on her deathbed smiled. Right. I don't know. It's always nice when you meet people who make you feel like the whole process of life is a good one where it's not like you want to live, live, live and not die. Like you make it feel like it's a cycle and it's okay. And it is what it should be. And there's something so comforting to me about listening to you talk about that, that I just want to thank you so much for bringing Deborah's story and your story into our podcast. And if you like what you all heard to our listeners, please be sure to subscribe to be notified of our latest offerings. To learn what we're all about, please visit us at themidnightramblings.com where you too can become a fansomniac. And of course, be sure to tell your friends because your support is necessary to make this thing take off. So for the Midnight Ramblings, this is Carrie Ofstein-Rosenthal and Jenny Silverstein. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next week. <laughs>